Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is, geez, it's November 1st. It's been about a little over a week since I did a podcast. First and foremost, apologies. Um, went to LA for one of my good buddies' engagement party. Saw a lot of friends. Had a great time. Also celebrated my 29th birthday. So last birthday of my 20s, which is a ter- just a terrifying prospect that just doesn't even flow off the tongue right. I'm still kind of processing all of that. Have only been 29 for a few days. But just, yeah, shout out. Great friends. Great time. Very, <laughs> very busy. Lack of sleep. Lots of fun. I am um, going to kind of take it quite easy and kind of do a detox for a few weeks after that. But other than that, great time, but I am back. I have regained my voice. I kind of lost my voice for a few days, and now I have energy. So again, I've done a lot more longer form podcasts over the weekend, so I think I will give more updates on what's happening in Israel, what's happening in the United States, but I want to focus this shorter episode. It's going to be a little bit shorter. I want to focus it on the Houthi, Houthi, sorry, rebels, which are an Iran-backed militia group that has quasi taken over parts of Yemen. I want to talk about how they have efficiently claimed responsibility for several missiles fired towards Israel. Some have been intercepted by the United States. And it looks like that probably means that we are closer to something geopolitical A lot of questions about what is Iran going to do? What is Saudi Arabia going to do? Saudi Arabia has kind of been on both sides of this a little bit. There were talks about Iran and Saudi Arabia actually talking, but Saudi Arabia has been in a pretty long conflict against the Houthi rebels in Yemen and the United States backing Saudi Arabia, or at least Saudi Arabia using American weapons in the conflict. So this could really change things. So we're going to talk about that in a moment, but I guess just to gloss through some things and just my quick thoughts, my hot takes on everything. (sighs) Mike Johnson, fifth man in line, Mr. Nobody, Jim Jordan, wearing a suit, speaks well, completely batshit crazy, covenant marriage, which is, I I recommend you look it up, hyper-Christian, wants to criminalize gay marriage. One of the legal architects of the Texas lawsuit to try to overturn the election results in 2020 in the House. Adam Kinzinger talked about how it was Johnson that actually came up to him and asked him to sign this letter. So he was kind of the main guy leading this. And so if something happens to Joe Biden, something happens to Kamala Harris, Mike Johnson would be president of the United States. And It is kind of interesting that the leader of one of the biggest democracies in the world is a guy that tried to overturn what makes our democracy work, which is the idea of the loser accepting the results of an election. And he didn't do that. And this guy, to me, is is interesting and kind of dangerous just because he's very well-spoken, soft-spoken, seems rational. He's so unknown that there's not the baggage. I think it was on the bulwark. I was reading an article where they were talking about how people voted against Jordan, Jim Jordan, not because he was too radical, but because they all had grievances against him because he'd burned bridges with them. And because Johnson, we have to remember is just as radical as someone like Jim Jordan, but he's kind of unknown. He hasn't really ruffled any feathers. 
and fatigue kicked in and they, they put him in, put him in. And I've talked about this before on the podcast. When you see a democratic backslide or the rise of authoritarianism in societies that were once free, fatigue is one of the biggest culprits of that. It's basically like the sensible people, the moderates, the people that believe in elections and free speech and hope and the future, they kind of just give up. They kind of decide, I'm going to back out, I'm going to opt out of politics, I'm just going to tap out, and I'm done with this. I have no hope. I mean, unfortunately, we've seen that already with the like, Adam Kinzingers, the Fred Uptons, Congressman Meyer, uh, Liz Cheney, right? None of these people I agree with on everything, Mitt Romney, but... They've realized they can't do anything. The party's moved on, and so they're opting out. And it's this fatigue that allows the kind of deranged side, the people that want power, to get it. And <clears throat> I'm not saying Mike Johnson is going to be the, <laughs> you know, the dictator <laughs> or anything like that, but we are getting closer to, I think, my worries because, look, in 2020, in that election, Trump and his allies tried about everything possible to overturn the election, but there were enough centrists, enough people like Mike Pence and Liz Cheney and just those types in general, even people in his own administration that stood up against him and said, bro, you can't do this. Like, this is just not how things work. But the problem here is that, as Bill Maher has talked about, a lot of others in the Atlantic have talked about, a lot of other never-Trumpers have talked about, this is a slow-moving coup. And we survived it in 2020. Barely, but we did survive it in 2020 because our institutions held up. But now one of the architects, again, the architects of these legal challenges trying to keep Trump in power, an election denier, now he has, well, he's second in line to the presidency. That, that scares me because it means that, yeah, 2022, we were okay. 2020, obviously Biden wins. But it does seem like the lunatics are getting closer and closer to the steering wheel. And if you're Trump, you're happy about this. If you don't want that at all, like me, you're probably a little bit worried. But either way, the guy is very pro-Israel, seems pretty hesitant about Ukraine, wants to, ironically, cut the deficit, but also defund the IRS, which pretty much every study I've seen says the opposite's going to happen. You defund the IRS, you're also going to expand our deficits. You're going to make the debts worse we have, right? So... It's going to be an interesting experiment. At the end of the day, does Mike Johnson stay radical? Probably not as much as some think. But then again, if he tries to work with Democrats, keep the government open, all of that stuff, he's probably just going to end up exactly where Kevin McCarthy was. So again, worst job in the country. And honestly, this is a guy who I think deserves it. I mean, just his, his views on how the country is not a democracy. I mean, it's not. It's a representative republic. But he believes that Christianity is pretty much like the only religion in the United States. He believes the Bible is pretty much the highest law of the land. As I've said earlier, very anti-abortion, very anti-gay marriage. Back in the early 2000s, wanted to criminalize gay sex, all that stuff. I just think this is not a guy that is a good face for the Republican Party. But again, he looks cool. He looks calm. He's measured. He knows how to wear a suit, which Jim Jordan still doesn't know how to do. So you put all that together, and here's where we're at. I hope Democrats, now that they know who he is, Susan Collins, even Republican senator from Maine, when he became speaker, she said she had to look him up. Like, this guy's a no-name. And I think <clears throat> that's kind of troubling to me because 
in a sense, like Steve Scalise is less radical, and he knew he couldn't even get enough votes. Jim Jordan about the same. He didn't get enough votes. But this guy who is a leading election denier gets enough votes, and that's because the fatigue has kicked in, the Republicans just want a speaker, and now one of the more deranged radicals is in the driver's seat of the House. And elections are important. People need to vote. The Republicans, as I've said time and time again, not a responsible party right now. We need two healthy parties, and this party's not one. And House Speaker Johnson, I think, is the face of that now. And, okay, moving on, before we get into Yemen and the Houthi rebels and what could be next in this geopolitical chaos, sorry, still, my voice still isn't completely back from the weekend, but basically, we're learning that it's quite a deadlock in Ukraine, something I will cover later in the week, but basically, Vladimir Zelensky, in leaked documents and also in, I think, an exclusive interview with The Economist, which I'm going to cover again in a few days in more detail, he has admitted that it's going to take a lot of massive technological and military leaps, basically, to break the deadlock with Russia. So that is somewhat scary in a sense, because it is interesting. We are completely forgetting about what's happening in Ukraine right now, or at least it's not being covered, right? And this is perfect for Putin, not great for Ukraine. That is why I think like people like Senator Schumer in, in the Senate, U.S. Senate are saying that we can't decouple Ukrainian aid, Israeli aid, which I support. That's a whole other conversation, but yes. Anyways, the other big news is that it's, a, it's getting really bad in Gaza. As you guys know, I am pro-Israel, as in I think there should be an Israeli state. I also think the Palestinians should be able to live there. They should be able to coexist, whether that's in two states or one state. I support the two-state, or I, sorry, I support the one-state solution. I want a pluralist society. Right now, that's looking like that's never going to happen in my lifetime again. And unfortunately, now a new generation of Palestinians are going to grow up with hatred. A new Israeli population is going to grow up with hatred. And I'm disgusted, of course, by, you know, what I'm seeing in the United States, Rashida Tlaib, Elon Omar to an extent as well, college campuses, academics, calling all of these people settler colonialists or settler colonists, sorry, uh, calling this a genocide. I've seen people posting basically the colors of the Jewish star in a swastika, you know, basically saying the Israelis are the new Nazis, which I don't even have time to debunk that right now, but it's insane. And you just hear people retconning history. I see people on social media saying, oh, like the Israelis, the Israeli people, the Jewish people were never here. They took the land in the early 1900s. This was always Palestinian land. Learn your... Learn your history before you talk. It, it, it's The rhetoric's getting so bad on both sides, and a lot of people, I think, are falling for propaganda, and it's just disappointing. It's despicable. All of that, and, and again, I believe the Israelis have a right to respond to the massive attacks. But where I am starting to have issue here is that the world's sympathy is really declining quickly. And now some of that is propaganda, is kind of this, basically, as I talked about in an earlier episode, intersectionality, backfiring, or going too far, not always checking the boxes. It's also just sometimes sympathy as well. But where my issues are is that it, the, the, the Likud government 
Benjamin, Benjamin Netanyahu is, and, and his coalition with the far right, it's going too far. Uh, the, the rhetoric also is not just taking out Hamas now. It's talking about a holy war. It's talking about an ex- existential crisis that the world must be involved in. This is, this is literally mirroring, or even not even mirroring, like just mimicking completely the language that we were hearing after 9-11. And of course, I understand the anger. I understand that from, from what, everything I've read, it's probably every Israeli had some sort of connection to someone that died in this. Like, just thinking about the size of the country, the amount of people that died, it is very likely that pretty much everyone knew someone, at least, that knew someone that died. And so I understand the anger. But... And, and by the way, I mean, I'm, boy, I'm just saying everything. But again, this is what happens when you have a week off of a podcast. But I also don't support fully a ceasefire because a ceasefire is basically telling Israel it can't do anything. Hamas, I believe, will still keep doing things. It also has hundreds of Israeli hostages. When I hear the world calling for a ceasefire or the people that are calling for a ceasefire, basically what they're saying is Israel needs to stop. Israel does probably want the hostages back, right? I mean, this is, again, I think, playing into the Hamas rhetoric. But Bibi Netanyahu needs to stop speaking in these very polarizing and existential terms, rallying the West in some giant fight, because it's going to lead to just a lot of Palestinian death. And he does not want to back down. His government doesn't want to back down. And we are seeing more and more atrocities, like... Yesterday, right, Israel strikes targeting that one commander that was apparently in the densely populated Jablalia refugee camp in northern Gaza, killed a large number of people. I've heard the carnage is awful, There's, but there was a second strike in this area. Wolf Blitzer, of all people, did a pretty interesting interview with an IDF spokesperson asking about this, and he's like, well, I think we got the commander, and Wolf's like, you guys thought it was worth killing all these civilians to get one one potential commander hidden there, and they couldn't really justify it, yes or no, but we're seeing more of this. And again, the world is going to lose sympathy for the Israeli cause in this. And I am just saying we don't want that to happen because we need we need some semblance of coexistence here, but we also do need to hold Hamas accountable. And that's becoming less so because more and more people are calling Hamas freedom fighters on one side, and then you have the Jesse Waters, as I talked about before, on the other side, or these really more militaristic right-wingers in the United States that are just calling for taking it all out. There's going to be civilian casualties. That's how war works. Like, this is not a healthy way to go forward. And so it is, it is really bad right now. It is really bad over there. The civilian deaths, thousands, thousands, getting closer to 10,000, 10, right? And tragic, horrible. And I think there needs to be some sort of measured response to Hamas, but not this, not this at all. And it's really heartbreaking, some of the stuff coming out of there. And of course, I totally understand that you're, if you're targeting terrorists in a very popular, or sorry, very dense area in population, civilians are going to die. But right now, it just seems like it's pretty indiscriminate. And I just really do question the calculation of, killing one commander, but probably hundreds of civilians. That's how you breed a new generation of hate, pain, trauma. I, it's really tough, guys. I, I don't have any answer. I, I kind of just needed to get these thoughts out because 
it's really tough. It's really tough. So much trauma on both sides, so much generational trauma here. And really, it's really depressing, really bleak. Okay, well, I talked longer on those things than I wanted, but moving on. And again, longer episodes on both these topics into the week. Going to do a deep dive into an update on Ukraine later in the week as well. Like I said, likely Friday or the weekend when I have more time. But I want to talk about Yemen's Houthi rebels, right? And so Politico, Politico writes here in quotes, Yemen's Houthi rebels for the first time Tuesday claimed missile and drone attacks targeting Israel, drawing their main sponsor, Iran, closer into the ongoing Israel-Hamas war in the Gaza Strip and further raising risks of a regional conflict erupting. And I should also note that this is not the first time we're hearing about forces out of Yemen, which, which are the Houthis, doing something because when all of this first took off, there was at least some suspicion of an attack earlier this month targeting Israel somewhere in Yemen sending missiles and drones over the shipping lane of the Red Sea. I think I, I think I talked about this, or at least I talked about this with, with friends, but basically the Red Sea, this is the one where the U.S. Navy shot down projectiles. That was where I first started worrying of something growing. Now it looks like the Houthis are taking responsibility for that, fully taking responsibility for that. And I have done longer podcasts on this, so you can go back and listen to those. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. But Yemen's civil war began 2014-ish. And this is when you basically saw Houthi insurgents. They are Shiites, links to Iran, basically rising up. And they took control of the, the Sunni-led government, which is in Sana'a, which is the largest city. They wanted lower fuel prices. I guess the economy was bad. And they wanted a new government. Rebels seized presidential palace. And this led the Sunni president, Abba Rabu Mansour Hadi, and his government to resign. And then this is when you then saw basically a coalition of Gulf states led by Saudi Arabia using U.S. weapons and logistical intelligence support, basically conducting isolated airstrikes against the Houthi insurgents. And... Basically, then you saw Hadi, who was the Saudi-backed Sunni guy. He resigned in 2015, then rescinded his resignation, and he fled to the southern port city of Aden, Aden, I think how it's pronounced, and he formed kind of an exile government there. And this just led to a pretty chaotic civil war. You had Saudi Arabia implementing naval blockade, preventing Iran from supplying the Houthis, in response, Iran dispatches naval convoy, waters around Yemen militarized, landmines, drones, worst, probably worst humanitarian crisis in the world, awful things like cholera, starvation. Sana'a used to be one of the, probably the most historic capital cities in the region, just decimated, civil, uh, civil society destroyed. Um, the Council on Foreign Relations notes that probably just the air, the Saudi-led airstrikes, UAE contributing as well, probably led to like 19,000 civilian casualties. And this, I mean, thing, shit just hit the fan, basically. And so since then, there's been reports of like Iran giving them weapons, attacks in the area. We had, we had attacks in I Iran, attacks in Saudi Arabia that have been covered, but Basically, one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. 
21.6 million Yemenis remain in dire need of assistance. Again, according to the Global Conflict Tracker in the Council for Foreign Relations, horrible thing. And again, pretty much a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And that's now where we get to the current situation, right? Because the Houthis have held the capital since 2014, and they are quite linked to Iran. And the one thing I will also add is that we do know that these rockets did come probably from them because some people are like, well, look, (laughs) it's hard to really believe that their missiles are capable of getting that far because that's probably 2,000 miles. And I guess the technology has been questioned by the Houthis, especially if you want to believe the Iranians haven't been able to supply them with weapons, which I don't. But anyways, there's an Air Force Brigadier General, Pat Ryder. He is the Pentagon's press secretary, and he did basically acknowledge that the rocket fire targeting Israel Israel did come from Houthis. And that's the scary thing is it suggests that the rebels do have missiles able to reach like 1,200 miles, 2,000 kilometers. And there's a lot of questions there because, again, Iran denied arming the Houthis. I don't believe that, though. I really don't. And the United Nations, Western... Western countries like the United States do have experts, though, that have traced components seized abroad from Houthi attacks back to Iran. So anyways, getting us back to the main point here, the spokesperson for the Houthi military, Brigadier General Yahya Sari, he said in quotes, our armed forces launched a large batch of ballistic missiles and a large number of drones at various targets of the Israeli enemy. He continued, the Yemeni armed forces confirm that this operation is the third operation in support of our oppressed brothers in Palestine and confirm that we will continue to carry out more qualitative strikes with missiles and drones until the Israeli aggression stops. So again, this is not seeming maybe like a huge military conflict right now, maybe just some feather feather fluffing, some threats, potentially, potentially there. But then again, This does complicate other parts of this because now I wonder what Saudi Arabia does because Saudi Arabia has kind of been pretty silent on these. Sorry, Apple Watch here. Series in Spanish. But anyways, Saudi Arabia has been pretty quiet about the Houthis basically getting into this conflict officially. And Saudi Arabia has been kind of quiet on who they mainly support here. I mean, We have to remember that the Saudis were in the process of economic collaboration with Israel, but then also have kind of put out statements saying what's happening in Gaza is bad and also kind of supporting Gaza at the same time. And so now what do the Saudis do? Because they've been in an all-out war against them, for better words, in Yemen for about a decade. So do they change direction, get back in closer ties with Israel in the West? Or is this a whole new thing? Also, what does Hezbollah do now? Does Hezbollah get emboldened here? Because obviously Hezbollah's best military or militia force in the region, right? What do they do? Do they feel emboldened by this? What does Iran do? So many questions here, but again, this is why we really need the White House to, I don't know if they stick with the hug BB theory, tell them you can't indiscriminately 
bomb some of these refugee camps just to take out one guy. They need to find ways to de-escalate this. Again, I, I gave my reasons why I don't like a ceasefire particularly, but they need to find better ways to get people out of there. Again, Egypt, I was just reading today, letting foreign nationals go across its border from Gaza into Egypt. But we're going to need to do more than that. But then again, at the end of the day also, people in Gaza are worried that if they leave, they may never get their land back. It's, it's fucking complicated. It's fucking complicated. And we just need the West to show our support for the Israelis against Hamas, but at the same time not do some of this. Because, or not allow some of the attacks that the Netanyahu government is leading in Gaza. And because we have to prevent this from getting further because there are just so many larger nations with implications in this that if shit were to hit the fan anymore, this looks like the overlapping alliances, obviously not completely the same, but kind of, that you saw in a lead up to the First World War. So yeah, on that light note, we'll end it. I, this was going to be a shorter episode. I guess it still is fairly short, but not quite as short as I was thinking. So like I said, longer episodes later in the week. I just wanted to get some thoughts out. Anyways, have a great rest of your night. And you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify. You guys know the rest. But my energy levels are back. I'm back. So we'll see you soon. <laughs>